today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. To begin with, let's get back to what's going to be happening or could be happening downtown. Uh, the latest wrinkle, of course, is that uh, the Hamilton School Board has said that, look, at Sir John A. McDonald is not in play here. That's the school, of course, that's right downtown and is kitty corner to uh, First Ontario Center, a.k.a. Cops Coliseum. And uh, was discussed, apparently, at a meeting with, uh, with the city councillors the other day by Jasper Kajafsky, who was the spokesperson for this consortium that we're told about. But uh, the board is saying, well, that's news to us, so we have had no discussions about that, and it's not for sale. What about these plans, and, and what about revitalization and, and fixing the arena or building a new arena? Uh, it's going to be an issue, and uh, probably not to be dealt with by the current council since there is an October election. But shortly after that, uh, somebody's going to have to make a decision about this. Terry Whitehead is the counselor for Ward 8 up in the West Mountain. He joins us on the Bill Keller Show to talk about those ramifications. Terry, thank you for the time. It's uh, great to have you with us again today. Uh, it's great to be with you and uh, and, and your listeners. I, and, uh, and on the council thing, I think we could uh, maybe learn something about uh, whether taxpayers are getting value for the number of counselors we have. Well, yeah, let's we'll get into that a little bit later on, but let's get let's get back to this issue right now. You, you've got to have a sense of deja vu about this from all your time on council. I don't know how many times now we've had somebody that's come forward and said, "I think I got a plan." It involves an arena, whether it was Mister Balsillie, uh, some other folks that have pounded the, the pavement trying to get some support for this in the last little while. What was your read on what you heard earlier this week, Terry? Well, and uh, and in, in the, in the- Listeners, uh, I'm sure we'll understand this. We have three uh, uh, significant facilities currently owned by the city of Hamilton, being the Cops Coliseum, Hamilton Place, and um, and the Convention Center. Um, the Convention Center's aged Cops Coliseum is is uh, outdated, uh, and I think Hamilton Place is probably still has minor tweaking, but it, it it's probably the one that's in best shape now. Uh, the Capitol, uh, so Capitol outlay. I mean, we don't have, we have escalators that aren't working at Cops Coliseum, for example. That's not the responsibility of the operator or management. That's the responsibility of the city. The roof needs to be replaced. That's the responsibility of the city. So any major capital is on the backs of taxpayers in this community. Or we would forgo other capital programs to find the money to, to put into it. We need to be more self-sustainable. The reality is is that it is becoming a, a capital risk for the city and the taxpayers of the community. We need to find solutions. So how do you find those solutions? Well, uh, if you take a look what's happened in Edmonton and LA, uh, they go off to uh, to design what's called uh, uh, entertainment precincts. It's through tax incremental financing. Uh, Hamilton is ripe for this because of the opportunities in regards to the lands that prevail around those properties. So what that, what does that mean to the taxpayer? What it means is, uh, if you develop a plan that you can get the investment community involved in uh, through tax incremental financing, you can generate condos and and, and, uh, and, and commercial entities and and take some of those dollars and return it back into the capital that you generate uh, for those facilities or renewing those facilities. So that's the concept. The concept is. Do we have an opportunity now to offset the capital expenses to this community? And do we have an opportunity to, to uh, create much more vibrant entertainment district with, uh, what would have a mix of, mix of housing and, and, and condos and entertainment and so forth? I mean, All right. But if that's, if that's the plan, and that sounds wonderful, and, you know, PJ McCanny talked about that. You and other counselors have talked about doing something like that. But, you know, I don't know anybody that's going to want to invest in building condos around an old tired arena. No, well, hang on. But uh, the, the, so the issue is, you need to, you need to. That's why you need to embark on a study. So you need to embark on a study uh, that, uh, and you need to scope that study to take a look at what are the opportunities, understanding the challenges the city has, uh, and understanding where we are in time. 
to take advantage and optimize investment around those corridors. And what would that investment look like? And how could that investment generate revenues to offset, uh, offset our capital risk uh, and, and renewing our facilities? Uh, so that's the whole concept. Now, uh, I think McCanty's group has uh, really uh, put this out in front in regards to having this conversation. Uh, I've been having this conversation with my colleagues for a while. Uh, the window is now. Now, when we talk about uh, all the lands around, including uh, uh, the school board lands, uh, um, I mean, the reality is is that when you go through these, uh, these processes, and I don't think the school board will ever argue, that if there's a strong case to be made uh, that they can build uh, a school, and uh, I think what they're trying to do, uh, or, 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 uh, an urban, uh, what's the terminology they're using now, uh, an urban hub? Yeah, it's, it's uh, like an urban sure. community center, but as you well know, uh, they already got turned down for funding from the provincial government, so I don't even know if that's on the table anymore. Well, and I don't think that, and I don't suspect the Conservative government will be stepping up to the plate. So I think they got some challenges on that one. But having said that, I, I, I love the concept, and so don't get me wrong. Uh, this could be part of the process. This could be part of the process, and don't forget the city still owns uh, a chunk of land just north of that location within the neighborhood. And to me. If you're going to do something uh, like they're suggesting, uh, and you've got two major outer corridors, uh, that land is on an island to itself. It's not actually an ideal location uh, for that type of activity, but certainly if you move it a little further north, the lands the city owns in a neighborhood, it makes a lot of sense. So there's a lot of opportunity to have those conversations. So uh, to rule things out uh, without understanding uh, the net gain uh, would be uh, would be. Wouldn't be, would not be prudent, and I think we need to be open to all opportunities. All right, but but this this all Terry, Terry, this is all uh, circling around this whole idea about these three entertainment facilities, and and council's going to have to make some choices about that. I, I know that Spectra, the uh, the company that actually manages the arena right now and and Hamilton Place, uh, would like to get back into this, but I I have never heard now. I, I haven't seen any offer from Spectra. I know they'd like to renew their contract. You've had that conversation. But I didn't get any sense at all that these guys want to build anything. They just want to manage what's there. Yeah. So they're, they're, and I, don't want, I want to separate the two issues. One is a, a private management uh, uh, competition in regards to those facilities. But uh, let's be clear, even though the subsidies are lowered, uh, they're not paying any major capital. So that problem doesn't go away. The reason why we need to embark on how we can offset the risk to the taxpayers and, and, and create a, 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 a vibrant entertainment district is what is what the purpose of entering into a, 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 a consultant report, a, a study, uh, to define what those opportunities are and what it would look like and how we would implement it. That is the purpose of the study. All uh, Carmen's group is saying, look, we think there's opportunity. We're prepared to throw money in towards this study. Let's get going. And we're prepared to compete with any other investor, uh, depending on how we implement or roll out uh, the results of that study. Yeah, now they, so, they suggested the other day that they'll pay for the study. How do you feel about that? Well, I think Sam really said, I mean, if uh, the private sector wants to step up the plate and, and, and put money into, uh, uh, put a study forward, uh, we're taking the burden off the taxpayers. Uh, and as long as it meets the uh, the, the, the test of uh, procurement and, and, and legal, uh, uh, we I think we welcome private partnerships. So, because I know some of your colleagues were a little reticent to get involved in this, they, they're the kind of, hey, what's in it for you guys? Uh, and, and I understand where you're coming from in a situation like that, but at the same token, uh, you know, if, if you set the parameters, and I know that was part of the discussion, in other words, this is how the city has to do this, 
And, and these this consortium group says, sure, we'll do it that way. We'll meet those standards. Uh, you got to ask yourself, why not? I mean, the, this this idea about, well, you know, this is looking a gift horse in the mouth. And, and uh, I think, you, as you say, if you want to attract private investment and private partnerships, you can't keep pushing private partnerships away. Exactly. And this is not, and, and, and let's be clear, we have pretty uh, open and transparent processes in which, in, in which, I mean, you take a look at what happened in the waterfront. And I don't see this much different than what we did uh uh, with the Waterfront Pier 4. I mean, we went through an exercise, we went through studies, uh, and then we end up uh, uh, creating a plan and uh, putting uh, tenders out, and, and private sector came in and bid on it, and now we've got a plan that's going to be implemented. How is this different? No, it is. It's very similar. I understand that. I guess the concern right now is time frame. And, and what I heard from uh, from the Mercanti Group yesterday was, look, at, we can't keep dragging our heels on this. Uh, you know, who knows what's going to happen six, eight months from now. If there's an economic downturn, that money could dry up, and this thing is never going to happen. Well, and, and land availability as well. Don't forget, uh, uh, Copley's is moving out. So when you look along New York, you've got the Salvation Army that's prepared to uh, uh, to move. You've got this, this little strip plaza that really doesn't serve any purpose. We're, there's under-optimization uh, along that corridor. You will enter into uh, a plan through this precinct development, uh, you can create a very vibrant corridor uh, that is exciting uh, for the city of Hamilton and certainly generates taxes, jobs, and obviously offset any cost in, in the renewal of our facilities. So um, I think what McKenzie is doing is really pushing our feet to the fire and saying, look, the opportunity is now. Don't wait to do the study. And we're, we think it's so important to have it done now. We're prepared to throw $200,000 to get your, the council's feet off the, the, the ground and get it done. Which, which is intriguing in and of itself, and I know the staff are reporting back on the on the legitimacy yeah. of this. Why is this uh, discussion circling around John A. McDonald property so much? Because, I mean, the board has never really said that this is available anyway, but uh, both uh, some people I've talked to at the city and, of course, people within the the consortium uh, really have their eye on that property. Yeah, so let's be clear. When you talk about precinct development, uh not all things fall onto one, one property. This is about a precinct. That is just one parcel that's within that precinct area. So uh, clearly there's going to be lots of machinations and discussions, and at the end of the day the right things will be done based on where those opportunities prevail uh, for both the school board and the community. So uh, the precinct development, they were just trying to highlight some areas that uh, could be part of that opportunity. McDonald's, you can't argue that it wouldn't be. So the question is, uh, uh, when you do the precinct development, why would you not include that? The other element to this, too, that I don't think got mentioned in the conversation we had yesterday, but I know you're fully aware of this, of course, uh, there is a pecking order here that if the board did ever decide that that piece of property is surplus, uh, the city gets first kick at the can, rather. Yes, yes. And, and Before I they can offer it to the private sector, they have to offer it to the city. Yes, and, and, and uh, I can also tell you this. I've had conversations uh, in the past with some of the trustees, and I can tell you that uh, uh, we talked about the, the bigger play, the bigger picture, understanding what their uh, objectives are in regards to uh, what they're trying to achieve. We can do both. We can do both. And that's the, one, that's the beauty about this. That's why everyone needs to be at the table. That's why we need to embark on the study to see uh, exactly what could come of it and what opportunities this community has and the school board has uh, to have a win-win-win. And, and that's what this is about. If you don't do the study, you don't look at the opportunity, then you're doing the same old status quo and you're relying on taxpayers' money to fund the bill. 
Yeah, and you've got all kinds of options. There can be land swaps and any, all, any sorts Absolutely. of uh, things like that. Of, uh, of this, but let's let's get into the nuts and bolts of this arena. You've been working on different projects for the arena for the last little while. Some people that want to bring a, a hockey team here, etc. You, you're quite right in your description that this is a very tired arena that's going to take a ton of work, and you already have a report that in, indicates that. And and you know you were mulling over what to do with that. Do you? But the other element now too is is Mr. Andlar has said, look, it may be a smaller arena someplace else in the city. That seems to be job one to just to decide at this stage: are we building a new arena? And if so, is it going to be there or is it going to be someplace else? Because a lot of what you're talking about right now is is going to depend on how you make that decision. Absolutely. Well, and let's not think. About, uh, let's not turn our minds off of the economics of these challenges. So the reality is, uh, there's only one taxpayer. So when you take a look at uh, a utility study or an outdoor study or arena study that we've embarked on, uh, we already have more ice services uh, per capita than probably most uh, municipalities. And the reality is, is that minor hockey involvement is going down. The other challenge is, uh, and this is uh, the affordability or, or, or disposable income. So when you're looking at uh, building yet a second facility that uh, to some degree would compete with some activities, not all, because of a, big, uh, a small arena, then you're you're taking you're, you're now competing with the city's facility. So uh, is that a wise decision? Well, it depends and on who's building the arena, doesn't it? And that's and those are conversations we need to have. I mean, do you dilute the 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 revenue generation? Uh, is that a benefit to uh, the taxpayers if the tax uh, if if they're on the hook? And and I think we have to have those discussions. So give me a time frame on this, because like I say, these, uh, I, I don't think anybody's pushing you to do something before you're actually ready to do it. But at the same time, there, there does seem to be some sense of urgency right now. There seems to be some people that want to invest, some people that want to coordinate this, some people that want to partner with the city. And, and you know, if you drag your heels on this, I mean, this whole thing may go away, because I, I know this much about talking with, with the capital investors. If they think that this is going to drag on, they take their money someplace else. Yeah. Yeah, well, first of all, two things. One, uh, I want to congratulate the consortium uh, uh, for stepping up to the plate and holding the council's feet to the fire. Uh, I'm proud of the fact that we are now having this conversation that that has been needed. Uh, I hope that uh, this will result in uh, uh, this this council making a decision in the very short term. Now, back to timing. Uh, I think that it has to happen, you know, within the next several months, obviously, because uh, you know, if lands get bought up and opportunities go away, it makes it more difficult, more challenging to actually implement uh, whatever strategy or plan comes out of that uh, that study. So uh, I, I hope, uh, I know the staff are looking at, um, um, well, it was referred back to staff, they'll be coming back uh, with a report. But be, let's be uh, also fair, we are in an election period, and, uh, and I'm sure the voters would, uh, prefer, uh, you know, some will see this council at this point as more of a lame duck. Uh, they would want the new council to, to set their, their, their footprint. Uh, so I think it would need to fall back onto the new council. Ward A. Councillor Terry Whitehead. Terry, thanks as always. Appreciate the time today. Thank you. We'll uh, stay on this story, obviously, as other developments. By the way, we did uh, occur. We did try to reach out to Todd White, the chairman of the board for the Hamilton Board of Education. He's uh, tied up in meetings today, but uh, we will uh, get him on and get his read on this in the next day or two. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. The uh, summer session for the Ontario legislature is wrapping up. They're going to take a few weeks off, but uh, one of the final pieces of legislation that uh, the Ford government uh, passed yesterday uh, was uh, pushing through the controversial bill that cuts Toronto City Council in half with uh, just about 10 weeks to go until the next provincial election, or municipal elections, rather. 
Now, the new ridings are going to match the federal and provincial boundaries. Uh, this was not a, a, a thing that got a whole lot of people happy. Uh, opposition pe- members are saying it's an abuse of power. Obviously, a number of people that were running for re-election on Toronto City Council are upset about this. Uh, there could be some court challenges, but it's the law now. And uh, it's, I guess, a law that they're going to have to be challenging if they want to go through legal angles. This is not the first controversy about electoral reform, especially at the municipal level. Uh, it's needed. I mean, it's something that is supposed to happen. Municipalities seem to drag their heels on this. So there are those that are lauding the Premier for actually moving forward on this and doing what Toronto would not do themselves. Joining us to talk about this whole scenario is Robert J. Williams, uh, who is a uh, former professor at the University of Waterloo, now a public affairs consultant, uh, and he uh, joins us on the Bill Kelly Show. Robert, uh, great to have you. Thanks so much for the time today. Good morning. Happy to join in. Well, you have dabbled in this before, shall we say. Yeah, uh, got your feet that. wet on this, of course, that with the, the situation with Hamilton. So we, I, I want to maybe tie these two together. Uh, right. First and foremost, let me just get your, your uh, reaction to, to this idea about reducing Toronto Council and the way in which it was done. Uh, well, I jumped in on the last part. The way at which it was done, I think, is, is really uh, a, a serious problem in here. This is not the way we run uh, an orderly, predictable election system. Elections are are one of the hallmarks of, of a strong democracy, and we seem to pat ourselves a lot on the back to say we've got a, a, a very effective democratic system, and one of the parts of that is an election that is well-managed, uh, honest, uh, and without interference, uh, carefully laid out and, and so forth. Uh, and, and this basically is driving a truck right through that in the case of the Toronto election and, and, and a couple of the other uh, uh, regional chair elections. So to me, that, that is probably the biggest uh, issue uh, that, that uh, we need to be concerned about. Wh- whether Toronto Council should be reduced uh, to 25 is, is an open question, but it's not one that you decide literally uh, without consultation. Well, and that's the the thing that I think irked me about this, too, and I think the idea of conflating the ideas of electoral reform along with uh, what some people have just simply characterized as, as political payback. I mean, Doug Ford made a lot of enemies when he was on Toronto City Council, uh, and, and some people are suggesting, well, this is just his way of throwing a hand grenade into that in the council chamber. Well, certainly those, those comments are, are floating around out there. I, d- I frankly didn't watch Doug Ford very much at council. I don't know that he was well, there. Well, it would have been often. difficult, Robert. He wasn't there very <laughs> exactly. much. Exactly. Uh, and, and, you know, that he had, uh, in a sense, he's carrying the torch for, for his brother who, who floated this idea uh, around the time he was elected. Uh, and then just to spring it back uh, at all is, is questionable, and to spring it the way he did I think really is an intolerable uh, way to to uh, use the powers of the province in all of this. And so, you know, having a review that is properly thought through, that is properly conducted um, uh, to reach uh, certain kinds of conclusions is quite appropriate. And the irony is that they did that in Toronto. They had a very long, involved, complicated ward boundary review process that led to the 47 wards. That was that was even endorsed by the municipal board, granted in a split decision. Mm-hmm. It was endorsed. Uh, and, and so it's not that council was shying away from trying to address questions of representation. What they didn't address, and which he obviously sees as the, the be-all and end-all, is a smaller council. And uh, in, in a community, a municipality of that size, 
on a personal level, I think this is a, a ludicrous way to, to enhance representation. But let's come to that later. Well, and but yeah, that's low-hanging fruit for anybody. I mean, let's face it, we, we already know how the public views elected officials, uh, and it's not well. Uh, so any politician that comes up and says, I'm going to slash the number of people that get elected to office, that, that's going to be a winner in some circles anyway. That's right, and and it, it's a very simplistic uh, interpretation of the problem, and a simplistic interpretation uh, or a simplistic solution to a very complicated question. We there's all kinds of of uh, talk about while well, they take too long to make decisions, they go around and around in circles, and they discuss everything until you know ad nauseum. Well, excuse me, that's the point of democracy to have those discussions, to get to uh, air those views. Maybe they can improve their their procedure. That's different than simply saying let's have fewer voices. And I'll I'll jump across to another perspective on it. Having a smaller council doesn't mean it's going it's not going to be dysfunctional. Uh, that's what he kept saying. They're they're a dysfunctional council, and he attributes it to the to the size. I'm sure you and I know that we could look to a number of other councils that are much much smaller. Uh, that that are probably as dysfunctional as Toronto's. And, and so to say the size is going to make things better is, is again, a simplistic interpretation of a fairly complicated question. Well, I can tell you right now, having read some of the uh, weekly newspapers of some of those small towns up around Georgian Bay and Cottage Country, uh, there's an awful lot of people that say, yeah, yet bigger does not necessarily mean small can be just as corrupt and just as di- is dysfunctional, so let's not go there. Yeah, but that's, that's always part of the debate, though, and I'm sure you hear this, Robert, when you're doing the consultation in this area. Some suggest that, look, it's smaller is going to be more efficient. Others say you'd need better representation. Uh, you know, the bigger it is, the, the more representation there is for, as, as far as councillors representing their, their constituents in situations like that. Yeah. Uh, there, there is no hard and fast rule there, is there? Oh, no, there never has been, and, and I doubt that we could ever come up with one, at least uh, in Ontario. There, there have been, uh, there are other jurisdictions where there are guidelines around the size of an elected council you know, for certain types of municipalities. I'm thinking in particular of the experiences in, in uh, the United Kingdom where I've looked at at how uh, a council sizes and council compositions are reviewed, and they have what, what are called bands. A municipality of, of a certain size, the council should be between this many and that many, and at, at a larger size, it's a different number. We've never done that, and, and I did some work uh, in relation to an exercise of this sort uh, a few years ago in Nova Scotia and concluded that there are no rules. And, and uh, somebody in a lovely line somewhere talked about a Goldilocks number. Not too big, not too small. Well, there isn't one. Uh, it's up to the municipality uh, under the Municipal Act and in the case of the City of Toronto Act to decide how big the council should be uh, and then to figure out how to elect it. But the size is not driven uh, by by legislation or regulation other than a minimum size uh, must be larger than five uh, and after that it's open-ended and I think to me the the more complex the community the larger the council should be in in terms of providing those voices uh, for the distinctive areas and by a complex municipality I mean one where there are quite identifiable separate, perspectives, if I can call it that, related to housing density or, or or the stock of housing or the kind of economic activity that goes on or whatever. more of that you have in the single municipality, the more you need to have the capacity to reflect those differences 
around the council table. And in the case of Toronto, um, you know, that I certainly see that as far more than 25. Well, and that's the circumstance in which we find ourselves, and you certainly do, when you were doing the research in the Hamilton area here. And yeah. I know you heard that from the public yeah. meetings that you uh, had people attend and, and start talking about some of those those unique differences and some right. of those unique characteristics yeah. in certain parts. But when you simply say, okay, we're simply going to adhere to the federal and provincial ridings, right. um, those those are really, really just done by population, though, aren't they? They are by population, and, and certainly population has to be a factor at the local level, but my sense, and I looked, I had a chance to look quickly at the Toronto re- report itself, and they, they looked, yes, at population, but they also spent a lot of time looking at other intangibles, if I can call it that, and, and related to neighborhood boundaries and other neighborhood demographics, as we tried to do in Hamilton and I've tried to do in other, other work that I've done. The federal one is, is not nearly as sensitive to those kinds of differences, I can tell. It is primarily population. Yes, there's a range of variation, but it's it's not intended to capture the kind of, of uh, detail, let's call it, uh, that, that you would expect at the local level, where it probably does matter because of what the municipality deals with. You know, if, if you're looking at a federal constituency, uh, you know, even even in Hamilton, the differences that that a an MP, the, the different issues that an MP is going to deal with, whether it be on the mountain or in the lower city, are not a lot different. But at a municipal council level, they they matter enormously. This is this blurs that distinction and simply says a representative is a representative is a representative. I don't think that that's an accurate interpretation of the role of of an MP and a and a city councilor, and therefore how they are determined uh, is is in fact important which is let's talk about how that's determined because uh, left to their own devices oftentimes city councilors uh, don't like to talk about stuff like this uh, you, know, you and I talked to when when you were going through the research here and we know that that the city council really kicked this issue down the the, the road a number of times from the, the yes. time of amalgamation up until yep. the time that finally something got happened and and it's very difficult for them to do that but at what point though, uh, does the province step in? I know we all know that that we Hamilton, Toronto, everybody else are are children of the province. I mean, we exist because of well, the Toronto exists sure. because of the City of Toronto Act, etc., the Municipal Act for other cities. So, so they're they're the parents. They they can step in and say, okay, guys, uh, they don't do it very often, but they have done it when it comes to governance. I mean, in the seventies, they did it with regional government yep. uh, and dragged a whole bunch of people, including Hamilton, kicking and screaming into that. Yep. Uh, then, of course, uh, as we know, around the turn of the century. It was, okay, it's going to be amalgamation. Uh, we know how that went out. And it's, it seems as if what Mr. Ford has done here is very much the same way, simply saying, I'm just going to jump in here and I'm going to do this for you. And I think, that you know, on one level, th- there may be a case for that. And I, I will let me back up a couple of steps. I agree with you that one of the things, and this idea that uh, decisions about the composition of, of, uh, of a council and the way the, the wards are drawn, uh, is very much a, a municipal uh, responsibility. It, it's up to the council, and I see an irony in that. I've used the line many times, and it's, it was basically it, it put the electoral hen house in, uh, under the control of the foxes themselves. They decided what it's going to look like. The uh, the fallback, though, come to that in a minute, is of course there is an appeal process to the to the mm-hmm. what was the Ontario Municipal Board, now the Local Planning Authority Tribunal, but. Uh, 
this is, to me is is one of the the issues that really should be addressed that that the question of of representation and the number of seats and the distribution ironically is is something that's subject strictly to a bylaw and we know that the people around the table see that very differently than than anybody else and uh, you know i i'd i'd hate to see it all done externally because local involvement is important but it certainly is a flaw that that uh, the people with the most at stake in the result are the ones who get the final call with that reference though to an appeal to the board but that in a way is also a, a, a kind of a false promise because as we saw in the case of Hamilton because I sat through you know 95 percent of the the municipal board hearing that takes a lot of time and energy and cost to actually fight it if you want to appeal it uh, that that's expensive there's costs involved in trying to 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 participate in it so to say that there's an appeal is is not really a terribly uh, effective tool to to bring that into account where we go with with the and the Toronto case, of course, this is now done by legislation, which means that can't be appealed in the same way at all. It's interesting that in passing, of course, the 47 ward proposal was appealed to the municipal board, and the board itself looked at uh, that uh, outcome, and in fact looked at at the possibility of a 25 member uh, model, as as um, many advocates uh, had had put before the review and the board concluded it was not a suitable model it was it was not one that made any sense um, the, and and in fact ironically and uh, quoting straight from their report the idea of having 25 large, large wards gained virtually no support during the public process and therefore was not pursued as an option so what we're getting is is an external voice coming in and saying i know what's right I don't care what what uh, the board said. I don't care what the population said. I believe this is the right way. Now I'm not answering your question because we're going all over the place. Here, no, no. I can. I think you're. I think you're bang on here. I mean, essentially, what we're looking for is 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 there a process that can be put in place here yeah. so it's not just done on a in in what some people consider a heavy-handed manner. Uh, yes, and and I there and my point too is that there is a process. The process was followed. There was surprise, surprise, public consultation. Uh, that, that did not endorse this idea, where the premier can walk in and say, "People said they didn't want more politicians." Well, no, of course they didn't say that. But that it depends on who you're talking to. If you're just talking about <clears throat> some sense of, 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 as you said earlier, this kind of resentment of politicians, no, nobody's going to say we want more uh, as a principle. But what we've had here is a very careful review of what was 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 going on or for to provide representation, and that, in fact, changes were necessary to better deal with that. And to simply say, no, no, 25 is it, I don't care what, uh, and and that uh, is the end of the story, I think really is an affront to the process that went on, that, that council carried out in, in good faith. I mean, they, they put money up, they, they invo- involved uh, a reputable consultant process, a consultant firm, and, and and an ex- very, very extensive process that involved all kinds of, of efforts to engage the community in what was going on and to simply say, well, nobody wanted more politicians, so therefore I'm going to 
give you this result is, is yeah, heavy-handed is, is putting it mildly. Robert, thanks as always. Great talking with you again today. All right. My pleasure. Take care. Robert Thank Williams, of course, a public affairs consultant who uh, worked diligently, of course, on, on Hamilton's uh, reassignment of uh, electoral reform in the seats that, by the way, we will be using in this upcoming municipal election. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. This is a story and a topic that we've been covering uh, for a number of weeks now uh, because of its importance. Obviously, there's a local angle to this, but uh, now the provincial government has stepped in. Uh, The province has now announced that they are pausing, that's the phrase they used, pausing plans to open new temporary overdose prevention sites. That's thrown into uncertainty uh, some planned sites, including here in Hamilton. We've already told you about the problems they've had actually even finding a location here in Hamilton. But we also talked with uh, uh, with uh, clinics in London, Ontario, and others that now are going to find out that they have no funding. Somewhat problematic? Yeah, absolutely it is, given the, uh, the, the crisis we have with opioids. That's uh, not just a Hamilton problem, not just an Ontario problem. Dr. Robin Lennox is uh, with the Shelter Health Network, joins us on the Bill Keller Show to talk about this. Doctor, thanks so much for the time. It's great to have you with us today. Thanks so much. Uh, are you shocked by this decision? Yeah, I am. I think it's um, it was a really surprising decision and certainly very disappointing to many of us who work um, in addiction and who work with overdose prevention sites that are ongoing currently. Um, I think it's just mostly surprising because the evidence is kind of irrefutable. We know that this saves lives, so it's tough to think what they're taking the time to review. Well, that's the first question I had when I saw this, is what, what is review, uh, what is reviewable here? I mean, uh, you know, this has been happening for quite some time. Uh, we know about the crisis. We know about opioids. We know about what's going on. I mean, that's, that's front-page news, lead story news, uh, almost sadly, every week in different communities. Uh, you can, would think that the province would be on side with trying to find a way to solve this. Yeah, I would totally agree. And I think, you know, it was obviously part of the the campaign that they were less focused on the harm reduction aspect and more focused on the rehabilitation aspect of, of kind of substance use treatment. Um, but we know that both are necessary, right? We can't have, you know, only treatment-focused care and no harm reduction care because we know that that's going to cost lives and we're going to see more deaths. Um, so I'm disappointed to see about that. Truthfully, you know, there is no... Um, no discrepancy in the evidence. It's very clear, and there's a lot of evidence, even from the the permanent supervised injection site in Vancouver that's been operating for a long time. Um, so really, there's there's no reason, I think, at this point to reinvent the wheel. I think we just need to keep going with what we know works. Well, and let's talk a little bit about how we got to where we are with uh, with this project. And yeah, you're right. I remember uh, Mr. Ford's comments during the campaign that he wants to get these people off that stuff, and that's laudable. We, I think, we all do. But but the reality is, is you can't go from from black to white. I mean, there's there's got to be some some interim periods. And and the, arriving at this idea about safe injection sites uh, was not done arbitrarily. This is done after years and years of of, of research and and working with people that are are, are dealing with these afflictions. Exactly. And I think especially the overdose prevention sites kind of emerged in Ontario in the last year, mostly just be out of kind of a state of emergency. So realizing that we were seeing an unprecedented amount of opioid overdoses and deaths um, and needing to get something in quicker before we could establish permanent supervised injection sites. Um, so I think, you know, that crisis is ongoing. We haven't seen any reduction in the number of overdoses um, happening across the province. We actually just see numbers increasing over time. So I think the scope of the problem is very much the same, if not bigger. Um, 
and the need for overdose prevention sites is just huge right now. Well, there's one statistic. A, a couple of weeks ago, we had somebody on from, from London, Ontario, uh, who's running a, a program just like this. Uh, and, and they talked, they're about to lose their funding, as you know. Uh, mm-hmm. They talked about their statistics over the last little while. And since they've had this provincial program and this provincial funding, there have been no fatalities. Uh, you know, there are still users. There are still people that are going in there. But that's a significant uh, pro- a sign of progress, I would think, uh, which obviously is, is something that the government, I would have thought, would have taken into consideration with this. Absolutely. And we have similar data that we've collected in the last two months. Um, in Hamilton with the overdose prevention site that we've been running in that our numbers are going up month to month um, but we've not had one one death at the overdose prevention site and we actually haven't even required any trans- transition to hospital. We've been able to safely manage people at the site which is certainly saving healthcare dollars not alone kind of improving improving the client care. And to uh, to your point earlier about well you know maybe the government's focus here is going to simply be uh, on getting uh, people off this stuff and and trying to encourage them to do that. Uh, I, I assume that they're aware of the fact that that work goes on in these clinics as well. Exactly, and certainly you know the focus of the overdose prevention sites is not um, necessarily to promote and push treatment options. And we absolutely provide that information when requested by the client. Um, And there have been many people who have actually, from the overdose prevention site, transitioned into addiction treatment programming. Um, But that's not the focus, right? I think the idea is that harm reduction and treatment are on the same spectrum. um, And we have to care for people at each point in that spectrum. Um, The overdose prevention site targeting one end and then treatment facilities targeting the other end. Um, but it's the same clients throughout, it's just a different phase or a different kind of point in their lives where one may be more appropriate than the other. Is there a concern with this announcement that you're going to drive people back underground? It certainly could. And I think, you know, from a community standpoint, the great thing about overdose prevention sites and supervised injection sites is that it brings people into a hub where it's safe, um, it's clean, it's a dignified space in which to use without stigma. I think if we don't have those, then we're going to be seeing a lot more overdoses happening either in people's homes, um, individually, in public spaces, um, where folks are isolated. There's going to be a lot more risk both to the individuals um, as well as the experience of the community. Well, I mean, we, we've heard the stories here in Hamilton, of course, about finding syringes in, in playgrounds, uh, you know, from use the night before, whatever the case might be, alleyways and things of this nature. And, and I'm not suggesting these clinics are the, the only solution to this, but they're certainly part of the solution. Absolutely. And definitely when they've looked at the evidence of other supervised injection sites, they have seen a reduction in kind of um, use-related litter um, in the communities surrounding these sites. So we know that that's a potential benefit, um, and we definitely promote that a lot with the use of these sites. By the way, I think it's, it's worthy of note here, uh, because there's a, there's a political angle to this, and, and I'm not going to drag you into that, but I think we need to acknowledge that that's the reality here. Uh, these idea about safe injection sites and, and, and sites of this nature uh, is not new. This was not a quote-unquote liberal policy from the previous government. This has been going on, especially in Hamilton, uh, with methadone clinics and other sites uh, for some time right now. Uh, Hamilton's public health has really been, I think, very innovative in, in addressing programs like this. But it's very, very difficult, I would think, doctor, to do this without provincial support. 
Certainly. I think both from a funding perspective and also just by maintaining an exemption, right? So in order to operate a supervised injection space like an OPS or a permanent site, you need to have an exemption in order to do so lawfully. And I think that's going to be a huge barrier if we're no longer able to be granted those exemptions, let alone the funding to be able to do so, to hire appropriate staff, to fund appropriate equipment. All of that is dependent currently on provincial funding. Um, So without it, it's going to be very, very difficult to maintain these initiatives. Nothing happens in a vacuum. Uh, When an announcement like this is made, uh, and if in fact they follow up by simply cancelling the program, and that's the fear I think a lot of people have at this stage, uh, there will be a domino effect. There are ramifications. As you say, there could well be an increase in overdoses, could be an increase in in deaths because of those overdoses, uh, which is going to put pressure on police services uh, who are going to be called to this, the ambulance services. We already Mm -hmm. have a problem with code zeros in this community. If all of a sudden uh, we have a propensity of these things, uh, one, you know, you, you can't look at this in isolation. One has an impact on everything else. Absolutely. I think the systems level costs of not addressing this is huge. I think both in terms of the amount of deaths, the amount of healthcare costs that we're going to see in managing overdoses and managing the consequences of an overdose. Um, and yeah, the, the involvement of our, our EMS services and our police services which we've been able to show that if we're able to have a safe space for people to be able to use and we have medical staff on site, we actually don't need to call in our emergency medical services or our police services. We're able to actually manage that independently on the site. Um, so it certainly will increase a lot of, of healthcare resources if we're not able to offer this um, and just cause a huge amount of harm. Now, you're working at the temporary site, of course, in downtown Hamilton, but with this news and with this government decision at this stage, though, Dr., uh, it's it's probably exacerbating your circumstance of trying to find a permanent site. I mean, you've already had problems with that. The hospitals have said they don't have any room for this. I mean, I, I don't hear any landlords jumping forward right now saying, I'd like to help you guys out. But the fact that there may not even be funding from the province for this anymore is is not good news. Yeah, I think it makes it very challenging for the organizations that are trying to put forth an application for an SIS. Because in order to do that, they need to have an established location. You're right that finding a landlord was actually very difficult, even for the temporary site. Um, for a permanent site, there's a challenge just in finding the appropriate landlord. But then if you're also not able to guarantee that you're going to be able to have funding to pay for it, it's really hard to be able to secure that location and be able to put that on an application to even get the approval. Um, so it's kind of a bit of a catch-22 that if there's no security in the funding, it's going to be very difficult to find an appropriate location and a landlord willing to sign on. This has got to be awfully frustrating, I would think, for the, uh, I guess the word maybe we want to use here is consortium, uh, because a lot of partners have come together in this community to try to provide this service. Oh, absolutely. I think, you know, there are so many organizations that have put forth staff, resources, funding. Um, Public health has been a huge supporter, but there are other organizations like the Good Shepherd, the Wesley Center, um, pharmacies. So Marchese Pharmacy has donated equipment. EMS has donated oxygen. Um, There are just so many resources. The AIDS Network has given us staff as well as public health has given us a lot of staff. Um, Really, I think it's a whole community effort. Um, And it was an impressive thing, I think, to accomplish in the first place. So the idea that it may now you know, be reversed is just really, really unfortunate. And I mean, naloxone kits are available here. As you say, you you don't uh, you don't promote or lord over people about uh, about you know getting off this stuff. But I mean, there is information available at this site for people that that do want that help. If seek that out, obviously you can make that connection for them. 
Oh, yeah. And it's the perfect way to be able to make it because it's a very low stigma environment. So people feel very comfortable asking questions about potential treatment options. We have all the information on site. And the individuals who have chosen to work at the overdose prevention site come from many of those backgrounds. So they come from either um, various treatment programs, outpatient treatment, um, hospital addictions programs, um, outpatient supportive counseling programs. There's so much to be able to draw from from the staff. And so for the clients who are interested in potentially accessing treatment, they already have a connection point to those resources. And the transition has actually been quite seamless. Um, so it's, it's a really unique set of circumstances. And certainly, I think the model works really, really well. So the announcement was made on this. Uh, where does this leave you right now with, with the day-to-day operation as of today? So it won't change our day-to-day operations because we've already been open and running. So the pause will only affect sites that had been approved but hadn't yet opened their doors, Mm -hmm. um, at least at this point. Um, So we're still continuing to operate. We have a six-month exemption um, that will expire in November. And then, if necessary, the idea would be to apply for an extension. Whether or not that extension would be approved or funded would be the next kind of hurdle. Um, We are reassured that, you know, London's extension went through, but... Um, but it's really hard to say with any guarantee what might happen in the next few months. Yeah, the, the three sites that are, I guess, mostly affected by this are St. Catharines, Toronto, and Thunder Bay, uh, because those are applications that, that they thought were going to be able to go through in here. And clearly, uh, that's uh, the, the, the decision the province has made to do with those. But it, it's obviously got to have you and, and the London site and others worried about uh, the long-term support, long-term viability for your operations. Absolutely, because I think, you know, if there isn't provincial support for this, then it's inevitably just going to be a very short-term intervention. And, you know, that may have some benefit during the times that we're open, but really it's going to be a huge step backwards if we're not able to continue after that time. And folks are going to be in the same situation they were prior to us opening in June. So um, it'll be it'll be very interesting to see what happens in November. Certainly we're very hopeful that we'll be able to demonstrate with all of our statistics and all the evidence that, you know, there is a lot of benefit in keeping us open, um, but it'll really depend, I guess, on the on the political position at the time. I promised you I wasn't going to drag you into the political arena, but I mean, somebody, I guess, is going to have to. This this was a political decision. Uh, and it was certainly not based on any medical evidence because both yourselves and others that run the other programs, the Ontario Nurses Association uh, and a number of doctors groups have all advocated on behalf of these programs. Uh, I would think that uh, there's probably going to have to be some coordinated movement among all of those agencies to try to convince the provincial government that this is a, a worthwhile program. Absolutely, and I think that that willingness is is certainly there to be able to provide that education, to be able to demonstrate all the evidence that we know, and even just our personal experience as healthcare providers working with with individuals with substance use is that we can provide a lot of evidence and experience in order to support why these why these sites should continue. I think, you know, should the government make, make a different decision, it'll be really interesting to hear kind of what their justification was and who the experts were that they consulted. I think for, you know, many of us um, who are involved in this type of work, um, it'll be very interesting to see kind of what they come up with in terms of, of any arguments against. And certainly I think they'll have, you know, a wealth of people and experts in this field willing to speak for, for the overdose prevention sites and why they're ne- necessary. 
Well, I, I, I'd like to think I'm optimistic about this, but I mean, they canceled the, the guaranteed income program a couple of days ago and said that because the data says it wasn't working, there is no data. Uh, and because the people that were running the program hadn't even done the studies yet. So I, I'm hopeful that maybe they've learned from that, and, and hopefully that it can be a, a reprieve for this too. Doctor, I, I do appreciate the time today and the great work that you're doing. Thanks so much. Thanks so much. Have a great day. Take care. That's uh, Dr. Robin Lennox from the uh, Shelter Health Network. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML.